Hey Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month you will receive a new paranormal soft style tea and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of your favorite podcast on the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, conspiracy theories, and so much more. When you share the podcast on your social media, we get a lot more plays. So please do this to help us out so we can continue to bring you all of this free content. As always, I'm joined by a man with his father's thighs. Ryan. <laughs> What's up, Ryan? Oh, man, not a lot. I finally have my voice back. That's good. I feel like I'm 99% of the way there. I've got a little bit of a, I don't know, something going on right now. But the problem is that we live in St. Louis and the weather goes from like 19 degrees one day to 54 the next. And my body is just tired of dealing with it and wants to kill me. You can send us your case suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And tonight we are talking about, tell them what we're talking about tonight. We are talking about the tragic story of the Donner Party. What just happened? in time for Thanksgiving. All right. <laughs> On April 16th, 1846, nine covered wagons left Springfield, Illinois on the 2,500 mile journey to California in what would become one of the greatest tragedies in the history of westward migration. The originator of this group was a man named James Fraser Reed, an Illinois businessman eager to build a greater fortune in the rich land of California. Reed also hoped that his wife, Margaret, who suffered from terrible headaches, might improve in the coastal climate. Reed had recently read the book The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California by Lansford W. Hastings, who advertised a new shortcut across the Great Basin. This new route enticed travelers by advertising that it would save the pioneers 350 to 400 miles on easy terrain. However, what was not known by Reed was that the Hastings route had never been tested, written by Hastings who had visions of building an empire at Sutter's Fort, which is now Sacramento. It was this falsified information that would lead to the doom of the Donner Party. 
Reed soon found others seeking adventure and fortune in the vast west, including the Donner family, Graves, Breen's, Murphy's, Eddie's, McCutcheon's, Kaseberg's, and the Wolfingers, which is an awesome name. Wolfingers. Okay. As well as seven Teamsters and a number of Bachelors. The initial group included 32 men, women, and children. With James and Margaret Reed were their four children, Virginia, Patty, James, and Thomas, as well as Margaret's 70-year-old mother, Sarah Keyes, and two hired servants. Though Sarah Keyes was so sick with consumption that she could barely walk, she was unwilling to be separated from her only daughter. However, the successful Reed was determined that his family would not suffer on the long journey as his wagon was extravagant. Was an extravagant too f- Never even heard of this thing until uh, I saw yeah. this. Yeah, I've never heard of this either. Okay, let me try this again. However, the successful Reed was determined his family would not suffer on the long journey as his wagon was an extravagant two-story affair with a built-in iron stove, spring cushion seats, and bunks for sleeping. So this is like a what an 1846 Winnebago. Right, yeah. Although better because it's a double-decker. <laughs> right. I mean, it seems like a little bit too much. How many oxen did it take? Uh, more than a few. Yeah. Spoiler. It taking eight oxen to pull the luxurious wagon, Reed's 12-year-old daughter, Virginia, dubbed it the Pioneer Palace Car. In nine brand new wagons, the group estimated the trip would take four months to cross the plains, deserts, mountain ranges, and rivers in their quest for California. Their first destination was Independence, Missouri, the main jumping-off point for the Oregon and California trails. Also in the group were the families of George and Jacob Donner. We kind of mentioned the Donners earlier. They might be somewhat important to this. George Donner was a successful 62-year-old farmer who had migrated five times before settling in Springfield, Illinois, along with his brother Jacob. Obviously adventurous, the brothers decided to make one last trip to California, which unfortunately would be their last. With George were his wife, Tamzine, their three children, Francis, Georgia, and Eliza, and George's two daughters from a previous marriage, Aletha and Leanna. Jacob Donner and his wife Elizabeth brought their five children, George, Mary, Isaac, Samuel, and Lewis, as well as Mrs. Donner's two children from a previous marriage, Solomon and William Hook. Also along with him were two Teamsters, as we mentioned before, Noah James and Samuel Shoemaker, as well as his friend named John Denton. At the bottom of Jacob Donner's saddlebag was a copy of Lansford Hastings' Immigrant's Guide with its tantalizing talk of a faster route to the Garden of the Earth. Now, this is what they had to go by, right? They didn't have Mm -hmm. GPS, obviously, and we struggle with GPS being wrong sometimes. Right. They're going by this guide, which they, I mean, would assume, and I, I would have assumed at the time, was accurate and had been tested. And mm-hmm. it's just really, you know, if you think about what it essentially is, this guy said, hey, you can get there this way. Trust me. And they're like, fuck it. Let's try. And it turns out that guy didn't know shit from shoe polish. Couldn't find his ass with both hands in a map. Mm-hmm. Whichever old man way you want to phrase that. 
Ironically, on the very day that the Illinois party headed west from Springfield, Lansford Hastings prepared to head east from California to see what the shortcut he had written about was really like. Oh. (laughs) The wagon train reached Independence, Missouri about three weeks later, where they resupplied. The next day, on May 12, 1846, they headed west again in the middle of a thunderstorm. A week later, they joined a large wagon train captained by Colonel William H. Russell that was camped on Indian Creek about 100 miles west of Independence. Along the entire journey, others would join the group until its size numbered 87. On May 25th, the train was held for several days by high water at the Big Blue River near present-day Marysville, Kansas. It was here that the train would experience its first death when Sarah Keyes died and was buried next to the river. After building ferries to cross the water, the party was on their way again, following the Platte River for the next month. Now, we are talking about capable outdoorsmen. This is not something that you and I could handle. You know, like, they just, we'll just build some ferries real quick. We'll chop down some trees. No problem. You know, that's that's pretty impressive that, you know, they just were like, eh, it's a... It's a hurdle, but no big deal. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody really takes it for granted how easy it is to travel nowadays. Mm -hmm. But living in this area, Springfield to Independence would be maybe a four-hour drive Mm -hmm. nowadays. And it took them three weeks because there were no major roads, no highways. They were dealing with, like, uncleared forests land that was not particularly well maintained they would have to hunt and fish along the way to you know supply themselves with enough food i mean there's only so much you can bring you know yeah you're not stopping at a quick trip or a hucks or whatever to to pick up beef jerky and bottled tea on your way (laughs) you gotta you gotta bring your supplies with you and resupply on the way i don't think we take how lucky we have it to be able to have all different kinds of drinks they would just get water presumably from you know if they found a spring that would be great but take it from a river and boil it Eh, i mean you can survive but i i'm gonna go ahead and uh say that (laughs) it's probably not the tastiest and they didn't have little powder packets they could mix in raspberry lemonade and stuff like that so yeah they're like what do we have to drink with dinner tonight hon Brown River water, my favorite. Right. Along the way, William Russell resigned as the captain of the wagon train, and the position was assumed by a man named William M. Boggs. Encountering just a few problems along the trail, the pioneers reached Fort Laramie just one week behind schedule on June 27th of 1846. But, yeah, uh, one week is a huge deal when you're talking about seasons changing and traveling through unexplored mountain passes at fort laramie james reed ran into an old friend from illinois by the name of james Kleiman, who had just traveled the new route eastwardly with lansford hastings Kleiman advised reed not to take the hastings route stating that the road was barely passable on foot and would be impossible with wagons also warning him of the great desert in the sierra nevadas though he strongly suggested that the party take the regular wagon trail rather than his new false route Reed would later ignore his warning in an attempt to reach their destination more quickly. 
Joined by other wagons from Fort Laramie, the pioneers were met by a man carrying a letter from Lansford W. Hastings at the Continental Divide on July 11th. The letter stated that Hastings would meet the emigrants at Fort Bridger and lead them on his cutout, which passed south of the Great Salt Lake instead of detouring northwest via Fort Hall or present-day Pocatello, Idaho. Yep. Now, Now, think about this. This guy is being told, hey, we just came from there. There's no way your wagons are going to make it through. And at this critical, this critical crossroads, this guy's like, uh, I believe more in the writing that was done before this was traveled than the person that just came from that area i mean if if you're driving and there's a police car in the middle of the road and he says hey you can't you can't go through here the bridge is washed out are you going to be like fuck Mm -hmm. it i'll jump it no i (laughs) I mean i can't believe that they decided to just say okay well we're going to do it anyway insane yeah yeah it's pretty ridiculous the letter successfully allayed any fears that the party might have had regarding the hastings cutoff On July 19th, the wagon train arrived at the Little Sandy River in present-day Wyoming, where the trail parted into two routes, the northerly known route and the untested Hastings Cutoff. I know I'm switching my pronunciation of route and route. Deal with it. I don't don't need you to point it out to me. (laughs) Here, the train split, with a majority of the large caravan taking the safer route. (laughs) <laughs> the group preferring the Hastings route elected George Donner as their captain and soon began the southerly route, reaching Fort Bridger on July 28th. However, upon their arrival at the fort, Lansford Hastings was nowhere to be seen. Only a note was left behind with other emigrants resting at the fort. The note indicated that Hastings had left with another group and that later travelers should follow and catch up. Jim Bridger and his partner, Louis or Louis Vasquez, assured the Donner Party that the Hastings cutoff was a good route. Satisfied, the immigrants rested for a few days at the fort, making repairs to their wagons and preparing for the rest of what they thought would be a seven-week journey. On July 31st, the party left Fort Bridger, joined by the McCutcheon family. The group now numbered 74 people in 20 wagons and for the first week made good progress at 10 to 12 miles per day. On August 6th, the party reached the Weber River after having passed through Echo Canyon. Here they came to a halt when they found a note from Hastings advising them not to follow him down Weber Canyon as it was virtually impassable, but rather to take another trail through the Salt Basin. While the party camped near modern-day Hennifer, Utah, James Reed, along with two other men, forged ahead on horses to catch up with Hastings. Finding the party at the south shore of the Great Salt Lake, Hastings accompanied Reed partway back to point out the new route. That was kind of in between the two pronunciations. (laughs) And I'm leaving it. (laughs) Which he said would take them about one week to travel. See, I'm in my head about this. One of my employees the other day heard me say the word comfortable. Uh And she got all up in arms about it. She was like, it's comfortable. She said, it's comfortable. In the meantime, the Graves family caught up with the Donner Party, which now numbered 87 and 23 wagons. I think that's back to where we were before, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Taking a vote among the party members, the group decided to try the new trail rather than backtracking to Fort Bridger. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Mm. Good decisions. On August 11th, the wagon train began the arduous journey through the Wasatch, Wasatch? Sasquatch. Wasatch. Sasquatch Mountains, clearing trees and other obstructions along the new path of their journey. In the beginning, the wagon train was lucky to make even two miles per day, taking them six days just to travel eight miles. And just for reference, at a pretty leisurely pace, I'll walk a mile in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably pretty normal. Yeah. So this is rough. Yeah. Along the way, they discovered that some of their wagons would have to be abandoned, and before long, morale began to sink, and the pioneers began to adamantly blame Lansford Hastings. Mm-hmm. By the time they reached the shore, they also blamed James Reed. Mm-hmm. On August 25th, <laughs> August a lot 25th, of blame to go around. They all fucking deserve it, too. It's a series of unfortunate events. I'm waiting for Lemony right. Snicket to pop up in the reading. Here, so. <laughs> uh, on August 25th, the caravan lost another member, one Luke Halloran, who died of consumption near present-day Grantsville, Utah. About this time, fear began to set in as provisions were running low and time was against them. In the 21 days since reaching the Weber River, they had moved just 36 miles. Five days later, on August 30th, the group began to cross the Great Salt Lake Desert, believing the trek would only take two days, according to Hastings. Of course. However, what they... Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> they keep... Uh, Hastings He's so reliable at this point. <laughs> However, what they didn't know was that the desert sand was moist and deep, where wagons quickly got bogged down, severely slowing their progress. On the third day in the desert, their water supply was nearly exhausted, and some of Reed's oxen ran away. When they finally reached the end of the grueling desert five days later, on September 4th, the emigrants rested near the base of Pilot Peak for several days. On their 80-mile journey through the Salt Lake Desert, they had lost a total of 32 oxen. Reed was forced to abandon two of his wagons, and the Donners, as well as a man named Louis Caseberg, lost one wagon each. On the far side of the desert, an inventory of food was taken and found to be less than adequate for the 600-mile trek still ahead. Ominously, snow powdered the mountain peaks that very night. Realizing that the difficult journey through the mountains and the desert had depleted their supplies, two of the young men traveling with the party... William McCutcheon and Charles Stanton were sent ahead to Sutter's Fort, California, to bring back supplies. On September 10th through the 25th, the party followed the trail into Nevada around the Ruby Mountains, finally reaching the Humboldt River on September 26th. It was here that the new trail met up with Hastings' original path. Having traveled an extra 125 miles through strenuous mountain terrain and dry desert, the disillusioned party's resentment of Hastings and ultimately Reed was increased tremendously. The Donner Party soon reached the junction with the California Trail about seven miles west of present-day Elko, Nevada, and spent the next two weeks traveling along the Humboldt River. As the disillusionment of the party increased, tempers began to flare in the group. On October 5th at Iron Point, two wagons became entangled, and John Snyder, a teamster of one of the wagons, began to whip his oxen. Infuriated by the teamster's treatment of the oxen, James Reed ordered the man to stop, and when he wouldn't, Reed grabbed his knife and stabbed the teamster in the stomach, killing him. Wow. So a little bit of an animal lover. I think that that goes a little way to kind of showing that people are just fucking done right like that's not 
a normal reaction you would have. If you saw somebody hit their dog when they're on a walk, you're not going to stop your car and get out and stab him. You know what I mean? And I, I know it's it's a little different, but it's kind of like this incident, I think, is, is a big turning point and people are going to be like, oh shit, what did we get ourselves into? Yeah. The Donner Party wasted no time in administering their own justice. Though member Lewis Kaseberg favored hanging for James Reed, the group instead voted to banish him. Leaving his family, Reed was last seen riding off to the west with a man named Walter Heron. The Donner Party continued to travel along the Humboldt River with their remaining draft of animals exhausted. To spare the animals, everyone who could walked. Two days after the Snyder killing, on October 7th, Louis Kaseberg turned out a Belgian man. Turned out a Belgian man? <laughs> what does that he mean? He made him his bitch. Is that what it is? I don't know. I know that's what it means when you turn somebody out in prison or like a pimp turns somebody out. So. <laughs> turn you out, old man. He's just going to uh, assert his dominance, mm. I guess. Hump his yeah. leg. Who knows? I guess by turning him out, it means like kicking him out. Yeah. Could you imagine, though, if this happened, right? You're James Reed and huh. your family's like, all right, peace out. They're, they're just like, OK, all right. I guess you're not part of our family anymore. I mean, that's yeah. rough, man. They must have really that is rough. hated him, too. The old man who could not keep up with the rest of the party with his severely swollen feet began to knock on other wagon doors, but no one would let him in. He was last seen sitting under a large sagebrush, completely exhausted, unable to walk, worn out, and was left there to die. It's harsh. Yeah. The terrible ordeals of the caravan continued to mount when on October 12th, their oxen were attacked by Paiute Indians, killing 21 of them with poison-tipped arrows, further depleting their draft animals. Continuing to encounter multiple obstacles, on October 16th, they reached the gateway to the Sierra Nevada, on the Truckee River. Truckee River. Yeah. Man, there are some good names. Uh, which is in present-day Reno. Almost completely depleted of food supplies. Biggest Miraculously just... In the world. Yeah. I hear their, I hear their PD is uh, second to none. <laughs> Miraculously, just three days later, on October 19th, one of the men... The party had sent on to Fort Sutter, Charles Stanton, returned laden with seven mules loaded with beef and flour, two Indian guides, and news of a clear but difficult path through the Sierra Nevada. Stanton's partner, William McCutcheon, had fallen ill and remained at the fort. It's fart. That's fart. how we say it in Missouri. That is how we say it. We say fart. Uh, you have a... You have a hot water heater instead of just a water heater. Yeah, how, are you, how else are you going to heat your hot water? Exactly. It's a steamer. I also hate cut the lights on. Like, no, you can only cut something off. You can't cut it on. That's an yeah. opposite physical movement. You don't cut lights off. It is. The caravan camped for five days, 50 miles from the summit, resting their oxen for the final push. This decision to delay their departure was yet one more of the many that would lead to their tragedy. October 28th, an exhausted James Reed arrived at Sutter's Fort where he met William McCutcheon, now recovered, and the two men began preparations to go back 
for their families. Dun dun dun. In the meantime, while the wagon train continued to the base of the summit, George Donner's wagon axle broke and he fell behind the rest of the party. 22 people, consisting of the Donner family and their hired men, stayed behind while the wagon was repaired. Unfortunately, while cutting timber for a new axle, a chisel slipped and Donner cut his hand badly, causing the group to fall further behind. You gotta do what you gotta do, but that's that's pretty impressive too, to just be like, ah, chop that tree down, I'll make an axle out of it. You know, that's, yeah. I wish I could do that kind of stuff. Yeah, Kim's dad is one of these guys who could use like a soup can and some twine and like get your car another 20 or 30 miles down the road if you needed to have it repaired. It's a way to do it, man. MacGyverism. As the rest of the party continued to what is now known as Donner's Lake, snow began to fall. Stanton and the two Indians who were traveling ahead made it as far as the summit but could go no further. Hopeless, they retraced their steps where five feet of new snow had already fallen. Can you imagine trying to walk through five feet of snow? This is We're talking no. like Buffalo this weekend, right? I mean, yeah. you would have to try and like be on your belly and just kind of paddle across the top of it, I would think. I, I, unless it was packed tight enough, you know, you had good snowshoes where you, you could walk it. I would assume they would have, well, they could probably just fucking make them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a really good point yeah they could probably make something with the sierra pass just 12 miles beyond the wagon train after attempting to make the pass through the heavy snow finally retreated to the eastern end of the lake where level ground and timber was abundant at the lake stood one existing cabin and realizing they were stranded the group built two more cabins why not sheltering 59 people in hopes that the early snow would melt, allowing them to continue their travels. Well, that's a high hope. Let's just hope this five feet of snow melts. People in Minnesota right now are probably like, dude, five feet of snow is nothing. You're fine. <laughs> you know, for the rest of America and a lot of the world, that's a, a huge obstacle. What can you do but hope, I guess, at this point, right? Right. The 22 people with the Donners were about six miles behind at Alder Creek. Hastily, as the snow continued, the party built three shelters from tents, quilts, buffalo robes, and brush to protect themselves from the harsh conditions. At Donner Lake, two more attempts were made to get over the pass in 20 feet of snow until they finally realized they were snowbound for the winter. Dude, at that point, your oxen are going to turn around and be like, listen, you're supposed to be smarter than us. We cannot go through 20 <laughs> feet of snow. Could you imagine seeing 20 feet of snow and having like a Humvee? It just wouldn't work. I mean, no. it's it's a mountain of snow. You can't just plow through everything. But right. what can you do? More small cabins were constructed, many of which were shared by more than one family. The weather and their hopes were not to improve. Over the next four months, the remaining men, women, and children would huddle together in cabins, makeshift lean-tos, and tents. Can you imagine being in a lean-to in this type of weather? No. You know, you could go out to get firewood and come back and it's covered in snow. Right. I mean, 20 feet of snow, your cabin could be as well. I, I, I mean, even if you're... a, a talented carpenter and builder i mean 20 feet of snow i would think would collapse 
most buildings, but what do yeah. I know? Meanwhile, Reed and McCutcheon had headed back up into the mountains, attempting to rescue their stranded companions. Two days after they started out, it began to rain. Well, maybe it'll get rid of some of that snow. <laughs> As the elevation increased, the rain turned to snow, and 12 miles from the summit, the pair could go no further. Caching their provisions in Bear Valley, they returned to Sutter's Ford, hoping to recruit more men and supplies for the rescue. However, the Mexican War had drawn away the able-bodied men, forcing any further rescue attempts to wait. That's a tough sell, too. You know, like, hey, guys, uh, 20 feet of snow, bunch of women and children, no food, bunch of dead livestock. Who wants to help? You guys right. want to go with me? Uh, no, dude, we're good. But I've got this kick-ass two-story wagon. <laughs> Not knowing how many cattle the immigrants had lost, the men believed the party would have enough meat to last them several months. On Thanksgiving, it began to snow again, and the pioneers at Donner Lake killed the last of their oxen for food on November 29th. The very next day, five more feet of snow fell, and they knew that any plans for a departure were dashed. Many of their animals, including Sutter's mules, had wandered off into the storms, and their bodies were lost under the snow. Hey, I'm not a mountain man, but I'm going to make damn sure my livestock is tied up right if that's going to be my food for the winter. Right. I mean, that is a careless mistake. A few days later, their last few cattle were slaughtered for food, and the party began eating boiled hides, twigs, bones, and bark. Some of the men tried to hunt with little success, which is odd to me. Probably most of the you know, herds of elk and stuff like that were long gone because they're like, dude, I'm not going to be there in 20 feet of snow. What the fuck is wrong with mm -hmm. these people? On December 15th, Ballas Williams died of malnutrition and the group realized that something had to be done before they all died. It took you that long? The next day, five men, nine women, and one child departed on snowshoes for the summit, determined to travel the 100 miles to Sutter's Fort. However, with only meager rations and already weak from hunger, the group faced a challenging ordeal. On the sixth day, their food ran out, and for the next three days, no one ate while they traveled through grueling high winds and freezing weather. One member of the party, Charles Stanton, snowblind and exhausted, was unable to keep up with the rest of the party and told them to go on. He never rejoined the group. A few days later, the party was caught in a blizzard, which, I mean, I would consider 20 feet of snow a blizzard, too, but... So they were caught in a blizzard and had great difficulty getting and keeping a fire lit. Antonio, Patrick Dolan, Franklin Graves, and Lemuel Murphy. Or Lemuel? I'm going with Lemuel. It's like a French donkey. <laughs> <laughs> and Lemuel Murphy, although he's got an Irish last name, soon died, and in desperation, the others resorted to the other C word, cannibalism. Cannibalism, you dirty <laughs> man. Living off the bodies of those that died along the path to Sutter's Fort, the snowshoeing survivors were reduced to seven 
by the time they reached safety on the western side of the mountains on January 19th. So we're talking from November 29th to January 19th. That's a long time. Only two of the ten men survived, including William Eddy and William Foster, but all five women lived through the journey, nagging their way all along the trail. <laughs> of the eight dead, seven had been cannibalized. Immediately, messages were dispatched to neighboring settlements as area residents rallied to save the rest of the Donner Party. On February, on February 5th, the first relief party of seven men left Johnson's Ranch, and the second, headed by James Reed, left two days later. You really want to put this guy back in charge? Huh? Like, no. He's made uh, it through. Senor Reed, uh, you are going <laughs> to be last in charge on this mission. So, On February 19th, the first party reached the lake, finding what appeared to be a deserted camp until the ghostly figure of a woman appeared. Twelve of the immigrants were dead, and of the 48 remaining, many had gone crazy or were barely clinging to life. However, the nightmare was by no means over. And we'll tell you all about the nightmare after a quick break. Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tea and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tea. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair of box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Not everyone could be taken out at one time, and since no pack animals could be brought in, few food supplies were brought. The first relief party soon left with 23 refugees, but during the party's travels back to Sutter's Fort, two more children died. En route down the mountains, the first relief party met the second relief party coming the opposite way, and the Reed family was reunited after five months. On March 1st, the second relief party finally arrived at the lake, finding grisly evidence of cannibalism. The next day, they arrived at Alder Creek to find that the Donners had also resorted to cannibalism. On March 3rd, Reed left the camp with 17 of the starving immigrants, but just two days later, they are caught in another blizzard. When it cleared, Isaac Donner had died and most of the refugees were too weak to travel. Reed and another rescuer, Hiram Miller, 
took three of the refugees with them, hoping to find food they had stored on the way up. The rest of the pioneers stayed at what would become known as Starved Camp. On March 12th, the third relief, led by William Eddy and William Foster, reached Starved Camp, where Mrs. Graves and her son Franklin had also died. The three bodies, including that of Isaac Donner, had been cannibalized. The next day, they arrived at the late camp to find that both of their sons had died. On March 14th, they arrived at the Alder Creek Camp to find George Donner was dying from an infection in the hand that he had injured months before. His wife, Tamzine, though in comparatively good health, refused to leave him, sending her three little girls on without her. The relief party soon departed with four more members of the party, leaving those who were too weak to travel. Two rescuers, Jean-Baptiste Trudeau and Nicholas Clark, were left behind to care for the Donners, but soon abandoned them to catch up with the relief party. A fourth rescue party set out in late March, but were soon stranded in a blinding snowstorm for several days. On April 17th, the relief party reached the camps to find only Louis Kaseberg alive among the mutilated remains of his former companions. Kaseberg was the last member of the Donner Party to arrive at Sutter's Fort on April 29th. It took two months and four relief parties to rescue the entire surviving Donner Party. In the Donner Party tragedy, two-thirds of the men in the party perished while two-thirds of the women and children lived. 41 individuals died, and 46 survived. In the end, five had died before reaching the mountains, 35 perished either at the mountain camps or trying to cross the mountains, and one died just after reaching the valley. Many of those who survived lost toes to frostbite. The story of the Donner tragedy quickly spread across the country. Newspapers printed letters and diaries and accused the travelers of bad conduct, cannibalism, and even murder. The surviving members had differing viewpoints, biases, and recollections, so what actually happened was never extremely clear. There was murder, and there was cannibalism. Mm. They're being accused of stuff that they're guilty of. And and I'm not judging, you know, I, I've never been starving, so I don't know that I would resort to cannibalism. I, I would have to think that, you know, at some point, pretty much everybody would. But there's definitely... The, the murder of the guy that was uh, beating his... Whipping his oxen. <laughs> that sounds bad. The guy that was beating his ox got murdered after he got turned out. <laughs> <sighs> Some blamed the power-hungry Lansford W. Hastings for the tragedy, while others blamed James Reed for not heeding Clyman's warning about the deadly route. Route? Route. They're, they're both guilty. Yeah, they're... Yeah, Hastings... For writing about a pass that he had never even tried, like a route that he had never gone through himself. And then Reed for being like, nah, it'll be fine. And just going on anyway. I can just see it like in space travel, like, you know, NASA comes back and they're like, eh, China, you guys should try and go through that black hole. There's probably something on the other side. Go check that out and let us know. It's so bizarre to me that they wouldn't take the warning mm -hmm. you know like hey we were just there there's no way you can do it you have basically the same wagons that we have it's not like some people are in f-150s and some people are in tanks it's the same basic deal and you're not getting through so yeah it's both their faults 
Mm-hmm. It, to- mm-hmm. it lies on them because they were the elected leaders. And I don't know what you would call Lansford Hastings, except a dick who's trying to sell a book or a guide or whatever it was that he was doing, just trying to make some money off travelers. Grifter. Grifter. Is that the word? That'll work. I don't know. I'll tell you what. I would have fucking ate James Reed first because I'd be like, dude, this is your fault. <laughs> Bring me that thigh. <laughs> Bring me that thigh. Bring me that juicy. Come here, boy. <laughs> All right. After the publicity, emigration to California fell off sharply, and Hastings' cutoff was all but abandoned. Yep, that's kind of uh, that's not the greatest tourist commercial you've ever heard. Right. Then, in January 1848, gold was discovered at John Sutter's Mill in Coloma, and gold-hungry travelers began to rush out west once again. By late 1849, more than 100,000 people had come to California in search of gold near the streams and canyons where the Donner Party had suffered. Donner Lake, named for the party, is today a popular mountain resort near Truckee, California, and the Donner Camp has been designated as a National Historic Landmark. The Donner Camp has even been the site of recent archaeological excavations. This is the story of the Donner Party. I'm sure you've heard it before, but uh, the details are very sad, not not just because people lost their lives, but because they had so many opportunities to change their route or their route, and they just didn't take it. And yeah, I I mean, you had to know, because this is a long winter right i mean we're talking still in late april there's just shit tons of snow everywhere still do you think that you could cannibalize a stranger if (laughs) i'm not talking about your left hand when it's numb (laughs) Um, do you think that you could cannibalize a stranger to survive not not kill them but if they died, do you think you could eat them? You know, I've had this art, not argument, but like a debate with people before about would you eat human? Mm-hmm. And it always turns into like, well, how are you going to get it? Yeah. So I, I would say like, if you can assume it's ethically sourced human, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> that means, somehow you're getting it. Nobody's dying that didn't need to die. Uh, and I've always said that I would probably try it, but I am aware that there is like prion disease or whatever it's called. Like there's, there's a, there's significant health problems that can arise from one species eating itself. Yes. Mad cow disease. So, <clears throat> yeah. So I would be, I don't know. I mean, I really can't imagine what it's like to be starving to death. Yeah. You know, like I have no concept that I've fasted before I've done fasts for like a week. Really? But I was not, yeah, but I was not tra- traveling. I wasn't, like, clearing ground and, yeah. you know. Chopping, making ferries. Yeah, building, yeah, building cabins and stuff. Like, I was just going about my normal day, you know, sitting in front of a computer for half the day, driving around, maybe walking a little bit. Like, I can't imagine what it would be like. So, honestly, probably. I think what you, the comment you made earlier is probably right. Like, in that situation. Mm-hmm. Probably anybody would do it. Okay. What if all that was left was the penis? 
Gobble gobble, motherfucker. <laughs> I, I, no. <laughs> okay. No, I just, I just like, I'm out. I'd use my last remaining days to make like a little headstone. I just lay down. You want to go camping? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're making light, but they had so many opportunities. And this kind of goes to illustrate, be careful where you put your faith. You know, make sure that the people that you, just because like someone is the dad of the family doesn't mean they know what they're doing. You know what I mean? And I know things were a lot yeah. different. Like, the, you know, men were the boss and, and you pretty much did what they told you to do. But it seems like a lot of misplaced faith in their leaders kind of led them to this tragedy. Yeah. It's it's sad. Okay, well let's let's wrap this up real quick. I think that I probably could, you know, like cut a fillet off a thigh of a stranger. I know that sounds really bad. But I mean, if I was if, if I was going to die, or more importantly, if my kids were going to die, or my wife, I would try and do whatever I could to feed them. Life finds a way, right? Mm-hmm. So we want you guys to check out Parabox. It's a really cool t-shirt subscription service, and you heard the commercial earlier. Go to our show notes and click on the link there to get that. Ryan saw a really cool shirt that he likes on that. You want to tell us about your favorite Parabox shirt? I feel like, yeah. I feel I felt like you were leading me into a trap. I don't trust you. <laughs> I've, known, I've known you too long now. But yes, I actually do like a lot of the shirts on here. It's a really, it's really cool. There are really neat designs for like, there's a Yeti one. You know, it's like a Yeti face. You can choose like the color that you want with it. Yeah, there's a Philadelphia experiment tea. It's really cool. There's uh, Haunted Hollywood, you know, with the H on the Hollywood sign. The Krampus one. That one's pretty great. Yeah, super cool. Uh, Wendigo. The Wendigo is one that I saw that I thought was really cool. Um, But yeah, the Polybius one, the, the video game one, you know, from we did the episode about it quite a while ago, like the video game that is rumored to have existed, that people were kind of studying the, the effects that it had on the players. Yeah, that's one of them. There's just, there's a lot of really cool shit on this site. <laughs> yeah, just check it out. It, it's, you know, it helps us a little bit uh, if you subscribe. So, you know, get yourself a kick-ass t-shirt once a month with a mystery behind it and help us out a little bit and support your favorite show send us case suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com do not forget to post us on all your favorite social media sites definitely that has helped out a lot so I guess that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique stay tuned for the after party Welcome to the after party. Welcome to the after party, motherfuckers. But we talked a little bit about cannibalism, and you brought up prion, which is the protein in the brain that, you know, like you were saying, causes problems. People might know it as Kuru, and that was a, um, I think in Papua New Guinea, the, uh, you know, they had a lot of cannibals there that would kill a person in battle and then eat them or whatever. And then, yeah, they all started getting sick. 
apparently there's Kuru footwear now because that just popped up on Google. So that, that popped up first. That should tell you that you got to dig a little deeper on Google. If you type in Kuru and shoes come up and not the cannibal disease, come on. So it belongs to a class of infectious diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, or TSEs as Ryan calls them, also known as prion disease. The hallmark of it is a misshapen protein molecule that clumps together and accumulates in the brain tissue, and I guess that basically causes them to go insane, which would make sense. Was this because they were eating the brains? Or... I think so. I think the brain is where that comes from. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard. When we had this debate, unfortunately, I brought a uh, a waiter who was not not ready for this conversation. <laughs> like, is there anything I can help you guys with? And I was like, look, if you could get ethically sourced human, <laughs> would you eat it? That came from an episode of Bob's Burgers, though. That's why I was thinking about it. Have you? Do you watch Bob's Burgers? Have we talked about this before? I do not, but I know that a lot of listeners probably do. Okay, yeah, there's an episode. I think it's a fairly early one. No, it doesn't really matter. I can just tell the story, but it's just a little thing that's kind of related. There's So Bob's Burgers, the restaurant, is right next to like a crematorium. Mm-hmm. And a rumor starts in town that... The burgers are made with these bodies, but it's not beef. It's like some kind of weird, like screwed up uh, Sweeney Todd sort of situation going on. And so the whole, I think it's, I think it's his daughter. One of his daughters starts telling people that that's what it is. There's a rumor you make your burgers with human remains from the crematorium next door. Hmm. If it contains human flesh, anything above the 4% allowable by the FDA, then your restaurant will be closed. And you, sir, will be going... Doing all this stuff to, like, try to put out the word, like, no, it's not human, like, we're not doing this, like, you know, nothing like that's going on. And at the very end of the episode, a bus comes in, and it's, like, a bunch of people who tour around eating, like, new and adventurous foods, and they want to try these, like, human burgers. (laughs) And they come in, and there's, like, 50 of them, and they're like... We heard that you make these burgers with with human meat, and he's like, uh, "Yeah, yeah, we do." And the daughter's about to be like, "No, no, we don't do that." And then he like covers her mouth. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> so the Kuru disease is pretty awful. The the people just basically go completely insane after that. Um, and we saw with Mad Cow, I believe it was who's the head of our. Um, medical department the United States. What's that guy's name again? Fauci? Fauci! Is it still Fauci? It's Fauci. Well, I don't know if it still is as of the uh, time of this broadcast, but uh, hey, I got a great idea. You take the parts from the cow that you don't use and then you feed them back to the cow. And that's how mad cow disease got started. Am I wrong? Mm. I did not know that. Yeah. I'm not super surprised by that, but I did not know that. Yeah, it's insane. Um, You talk about ethically sourced, right? And obviously you say that as a joke because it it can't be 
it can't be ethically sourced. If it is a survival situation and you are going to die, you take it from a dead body, then I guess that could be considered ethically sourced as long as you didn't kill the, the person. Mm -hmm. There is, and I never did an episode of him on exploring evil, but um, a guy named Armin Muiz, I think. Well, in 2001, he found somebody on the internet that was willing to be eaten by him. Had him over for dinner and killed him. Ate him. And there is a striking resemblance to the joke I, I told earlier about you cutting the guy's wiener off mm. where he, he did that he did that and fried it up in a pan with like cabbage and whatever the fuck they eat over there um, I'm pretty sure it's just sauerkraut yeah fried it up and tried to eat it like a sausage but found that it was too tough pretty crazy and then obviously you know everybody's seen the Jeffrey Dahmer Netflix series you know he ate people uh, I did an episode on exploring evil uh, I think it's called the real life Buffalo Bill about a guy in Philadelphia who kept women in a pit in his basement and when the police finally went in yeah just a human head boiling on a pot on a stove yeah it is what it is. <laughs> All I think about is fictional stuff. I'm not thinking about anything like real. I don't watch a lot of those documentaries. If Kim was here, that's all she watches. She won't watch anything with like fake violence, mm -hmm. but she will watch real shit. Mm -hmm. She was, she is more than happy to watch documentaries about people who are raped and murdered and mutilated and all this stuff or, you know, mm -hmm. I walked in the other day and she's watching one and this woman's like, why was your husband assaulted with a banana? Well, he's allergic to bananas. And I was like, what the fuck is this? And she's like, oh, they shoved a banana up this guy's ass. And it's like, that's all right. I'm leaving. Are I you guess. serious? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of bizarre stuff. Wow. But the one thing that I kept thinking about during this and it's really messed up. I don't know if you ever played Twisted Metal. Back in the day, it was on like PS1. I, I did, yeah. Actually, I did. That's one of the last games I ever played. <laughs> yeah. Twisted Metal was fun. There were like messed up backstories for all the characters, but it was like a, it was a vehicle combat game and it was fun. Mm -hmm. And they came out with one in mid to late 2000s called Twisted Metal Black, I mm -hmm. think. I'm fairly certain. That was the last one I played. I don't know if they released any more after that, but it was super dark. Mm hmm. Because it was for like PS2 or PS3 and it was really, I don't know, just had super dark backstories for everybody. Like Sweet Tooth, the clown with the flames coming out of his head, like it delved more into like the crimes that he had committed in his history. Mm -hmm. It got more into a lot of the different characters, but one of them was um, like a Vietnam soldier who had been captured and thrown in this pit. And they tossed him and his friend in there and his friend was injured and his friend eventually died and they just left him down there like no food no water nothing they just left him in this pit for days and days and he's saying well he's telling a story that one of the officers that had captured him came by and like just dropped a knife down but at the end of the story the guy this officer comes drops a knife down like through the grate and just tells him 
if you're going to survive, you're going to have to eat. Yeah. And he's just forced to essentially cannibalize his friend like he's rescued, but he's just like goes so crazy after that that he's basically useless. Huh. But it's really messed up. Like there are no happy cannibalism stories. There's nothing like like thank you so much for your sacrifice. We get to survive a little bit longer. It's always like this dark, horrific thing because it is. It is. I mean, and it's surrounded by disease and desperation and all this. And it just, it's so tragic because of what these people went through, like what we were talking about. And like you said, it's, it's worse because they never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with, you know, talking about Kuru, it's kind of a, a sign of intelligent design, right? Like, we can eat so many different things. I would think that humans probably have the most vast appetite of any creature and can eat probably more different things than any other animal because we can cook and we can you know detoxify foods and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but you can't eat other people yeah i mean even plants like peppers that have spices uh, like capsaicin as a defense mechanism is that the ghost pepper ridiculous yeah like ridiculous ancient humans ate that stuff and were like i'll fucking do it again and now it's just part of our cuisine to the point that I had jalapenos and something I ate for like three or four days in a row. Mm-hmm. And my stomach was a little messed up, but I ate them again because <laughs> yeah. I can't stop. They're good. Yeah, they're good. Thanks for listening, Crypt Keepers. Don't forget to check out Parabox. Go to the link in the show notes, and that will tell you how to get your awesome t-shirt subscription. Please post us up on all your social media sites. Send case suggestions to crypticpodcast at gmail.com. And have a happy Thanksgiving. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.